agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Hey, Mike. How you doing this new year? I'm, I'm like, well, I'm like Santa Claus on December 26th, oh, I think. Yeah, I know. So I'm, <laughs> I, I'm I know still the, in recovery mode. I, I know the feeling, and you know, I thought that we were going to have a nice, quiet, sedate sort of first show of 2020, but that was just not in the cards, thanks to some pretty big international news, which I thought we'd start with. So, sure. as most people know, it's a very tense situation in the Middle East following the U.S. assassination of Ara- Ara- sorry, Iranian Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani on Thursday. Now, according to Secretary of Defense Mike Esper, Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. Soleimani, who took command of the Quds Force, and that's that special operation wing of Iran's Revolutionary Guard in the late 1990s, he's widely believed to have been responsible for hundreds, if not thousands, of U.S. deaths in the region over the years. And both the Obama and, before that, the Bush administrations, as well as the government of Israel, had reportedly considered taking him out, but decided against it, fearing that the repercussions would make the situation even worse. And as you would expect, Iran has vowed vengeance for this attack. And, you know, while this assassination surprised most analysts, it it sure didn't come out of nowhere. Because this last week, of course, you know, the U.S. embassy in Baghdad was attacked. And then that was that was in turn in response to a U.S. airstrike in Iraq. And that airstrike killed several dozen members of an Iranian backed militia that was believed to have been responsible for those December 27th rocket attacks on an Iraqi military base that killed one American contractor and wounded several U.S. and Iraqi troops. And right now, there are currently around 5,200 U.S. troops in Iraq, and around 3,000 more are en route to the region to, you know, in light of recent events, obviously. And finally, the U.S. government has now ordered all citizens to leave Iraq, as well as closing its embassy in Baghdad. So a lot of all stuff happened. Yeah, 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 right. So, <laughs> yeah. citizens can everyone out. Yeah, say. <laughs> but so a lot going on, right, Jay? And so, uh, right. what do you? I guess the big question is: Did President Trump make the right call in ordering the the, the killing of, of Soleimani? What do you think? Well, the the answer to that, that question is always time will tell. Yeah, um, yeah. That's I mean, that's that's like the actual real correct answer. Yeah. Um, but the the hot take, uh, you know, sort of seat of my pants answer is is well, yes. Um, you know, this is a situation that's been going on for, for as you said, some time. Probably, you know, going back a couple years, if you want to just count since the Trump administration. Um, uh, but and and you characterize this as an assassination, which which might be a little it's a little bit of a loaded term. Um, this was a a a foreign. Uh, military general who was essentially carrying out military operations uh, in another country against American um, uh, servicemen and contractors, um, and as, as well as likely been responsible for uh, numerous other terrorist attacks uh, against Americans, against um, Israelis, against Saudis, um, 
against uh, American shipping interests, all, all these all these things. And he is, by all reports, uh, was a, a terrible, horrible person and really the the the, the kingpin of, of Iranian terror. Uh, so I think it's I think it's a good thing that he's gone. Um, and I think this is a, you know, Trump uh, had, had criticized President Obama, as as had I and many other people, about you know drawing lines in the sand and then and then doing nothing about it. Um, in this case, he did something about it, uh, and and I think uh, again, this is we, you and I may have different worldviews on this, but but mine has always been that uh, passivity is is and weakness is what invites attack. Um, and we had been subject to num- numerous attacks um, uh, of escalating proportions, and uh, I think uh, striking back hard sometimes sends the best message um, that uh, uh, to, to to not to knock that off. And and I think it also sends a message to Iranians um, uh, within Iran who have been struggling to. Uh, uh, to to live in a more uh, freer society because uh, Soleimani was also the guy who was in charge of putting down those protests. Um, so I think you know what, there's going to be the obvious uh, blowback uh, of, of people will be a gasp and, and clutching at their pearls and this is so horrible and you know it's it's the end of the world and so forth and uh, secretly I think a lot of those folks will be relieved that he's gone um, and I and I think time will tell. Uh, what happens down the road, but uh, it, it's one of those things with with Iran. I mean, you forty years uh, of, of trying to um, work with them to some extent, right? Uh, it it hasn't it hasn't worked, and the the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which was supposed to usher them into sort of the civilized world, um, they received a a, a a a huge infusion of cash. Uh, and they use that cash to fund terrorism uh, throughout the Middle East. So I think that that kind of gives the answer as to uh, look: are are they willing to come and join the 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 roles of the of the civilized nations? And I think it's the answer is no. And Soleimani was probably one of the big reasons uh, why, or the big perpetrators uh, keeping them from doing that. So I think uh, at this point, it's it's good that he's gone, and we'll see what happens next. Well, I agree with you that it's good that he's gone, and I think almost anyone would agree with that. It seems to be there's a lot of bipartisan consensus on that. But I guess the difference here is uh, that I get the sense that your view of this is perhaps a little more black and white than than mine is. I have a lot more concerns about it. I mean, you looked at the, the funeral procession and, and all the, the, the people coming out and, you know, selling, shouting death to the great Satan of America. And this, these are Iraqi That's citizens. And I right. think a lot of people in the United States don't understand the strong pull of Iran on Iraq, because you've got to remember, these are two, uh, these are two countries that share uh, religious beliefs. They're both majority uh, Shiite countries. And there's a lot of pull of Iraq toward Tehran. And, and they're not just like our good buddies in, in the Middle East, necessarily. And, and they're faced with this corrupt regime that that a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, feel that we you know, basically put into place and are keeping in power. And now we we basically just say, well, we're just going to ignore your sovereignty and going to launch these attacks. And that, I think there's reason to believe that that could be a recipe for disaster. It's really easy to see 
this resulting in uh, Iraq calling for the removal of all U.S. troops, which could further destabilize the region. We don't know what kind of response we're going to get from Iran, but it's certainly possible that this could lead to far more deaths than anything that Soleimani uh, would have would have planned or could have put through. And that, of course, is the gamble here. You know, there's a political scientist, Robert Jervis, who talked about the difference between what he called the spiral model and the deterrence model of conflict. And the spiral Mm -hmm. model is basically, well, if you hit back, that other person hits back harder and it just descends into chaos. Then there's the deterrence model, which you hit back hard enough where you just make them either knock them out or just give them incredible pause before responding. And and obviously here, we have been working for a long time now with Iran under the spiral model. And Trump is trying the deterrence model. And, you know, like you, as you said, time will tell if that if that works, if that's effective. And so I am. I am hesitant to just condemn this move because, of course, they have a lot of information that we do not have, that we cannot have because of national security reasons. But we'll find out. And the fact that two previous administrations, both Republican and Democratic and Israel, which, you know, certainly is very concerned about its security, chose not to. And I won't use the word assassinate. I'll you know, more neutral term. I mean, you can use clutching at their pearls, but I won't use assassinate. I'll say right. kill Soleimani. Right. They chose not to kill him. That suggests something to me, too. And and I would hate to say that. Well, no, I won't hate to say that. I certainly am disinclined to give Donald Trump the benefit of the doubt because I feel like in foreign policy, he's demonstrated that he's not one for subtlety or patience or strategic thinking. And so... That gives me a certain amount of pause. I hope he's right, and you're certainly right yeah. in that what we've been trying for a long time has not been at least as effective as quickly as we would like. I believe that the uh, the approach of the Obama administration with the nuclear deal was the right approach and would have would have you know borne fruit over time. And we're not talking about years; we're probably talking about decades. But but again, you can't you know you can't prove that counterfactual. Right. No, I and I I would I would say I mean when these other administrations um, looked at uh, uh, killing him, um, again the fact that he was sort of on the list of people we're looking at is like look if we get a shot we should consider killing them. Um, that's that's a pretty short list and one that I think it's probably hard to get on. Um, but the the situations that you know, what was going on in the world at that time was was different than what's going on now. And I think uh, the fact that we had this escalation uh, moving forward um, and and the fact that we had just recently had a, again, U.S. Uh, citizen killed, um, I, I think it's I think it sends a, a really strong yeah. message. So we'll, I guess we'll see. Uh, but I'm I and I understand the, the idea of the Iraqis, um, but I, I, I think there's also. Um, there was also celebration in some quarters of Iraq uh, at his death. Sure. Um, and and my sense is there are probably more Iraqis there who are quietly uh, celebrating. Um, again, this is a man who waged war on them uh, for for decades um, uh, before the U.S. got there. So. Um, we'll we'll see. But uh, I I guess I guess I, my, my problem here, Jay, is I'm trying to figure out how this plays out. Like I can get 
how the you can might call it the the Obama model and to a lesser extent that before that the Bush model of of uh, some sort of engage more Obama, not really Bush, but how that model would at least potentially play out. But here, Donald Trump obviously made a, well, it's, it's a dangerous bet saying that, okay, we're going to just try to crush Iraq economically. And certainly Iraq's economy, Iran. or, sorry, Iran's economy. Yeah. Sorry. Iran's economy is in free fall and has been since not only we pulled out of the deal, the, the nuclear deal, but imposed even greater sanctions. And so to me, what we're seeing is the playing out of that spiral model. And I'm trying to understand what the end game is. It, does, does the president and do the people who are arguing for this just expect the Iranian, Iranian hardliners to just say, you know what, you're right, we give, we're going to stop doing this? Or is it more likely, as it seems to me, that they're going to, because of the nature of their belief theocratic government system and, and the, the 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 hatred that what we're doing is arising in these groups is are they just going to fight to the death and engage in some sort of massive you know outpouring of terrorism that could make the world the world a far worse place that to me seems like a much more likely outcome than them just i don't know giving up it seems to me right. that we're, uh, we're not. No, we're, I think I think it's it's naive it's naive to say they're just going to give up. So what's going to uh, happen? But if they're I mean, going to do this, how, this how new this... massive outpouring of terrorism, they'll have to do it without Soleimani. Sure, but I mean, right? How... I mean, it's it's one. It, this is a this was a key figure. Yeah, uh, Who has now been taken out? Um, and and I think, uh, and again, I I don't know this stuff other than just what I read in the paper. What everybody else could read in the paper. I mean, I, I don't know what they're what their bench strength is on this. Uh, how, you know, how many people do they have to, who, to replace him? Uh, are they as smart, talented, uh, persuasive, all that sort of, uh, all the sort of the, what, what he, he brought. Um, I, I think there is, there is something to be said that there are sometimes there are, uh, people who, uh, for good or for ill are, are extremely influential and you can't, you can't just replace them Absolutely. with, with yeah. someone else. Yeah. And I think the gamble, the bet is that he's one of those people. He is, you know, he is there, whatever if you want to say it's a, you know, General MacArthur or, a, of course, we did replace MacArthur. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of an, um, no, I, and uh, I understand what you're saying. And right, I, I mean, that's the bet, right? That's the yeah. bet that the Trump administration is making. And, and I think, I mean, I certainly hope that they're right in making this bet. I'm just, I'm just struggling to see what the end game is here. And again, I, I hope it's just because I don't, I don't have all the information and they're right on this. And we're going to look back in, in, in five years or less and say, my gosh, that was a, that was a great yeah. call, a great change, of course, but I, I just don't, I, I, don't I think see the, it. I think the end game is looking at is to curb Iranian adventurism around the region. Yeah, I, right. Uh, I don't think you can say, well, this is going to, you know, directly lead to regime change. Uh, it might help move things in that direction, but that's a long-term goal. Um, see, I think and, I uh, think that would it, make. Sorry, I, I say I think that would make sense if Iran was just another country that had, right. you know, but it's not just another country. And I think a lot of folks, both on the right and the left, have pointed out when you look at their leadership structure and you look at, you know, what what keeps them in power. And I think that's the problem we make a lot of times in foreign policy is we say, well, you know what? 
these folks are just like us. They just right. look a little different. They dress funny, whatever, but they're, they essentially want the same things and believe the same things. And that's just not true. And I think some of our greatest mistakes in foreign policy have been predicated on this just totally incorrect belief that everyone just wants the same thing that people in the U.S. and the West want. And that just seems to me to be just incredibly wrong. Oh, I, and I think you're exactly right on that. I, I, yeah, that's to me, that's a huge, uh, a huge point. Um, but, but to me, that sort of justifies all the more reason why, uh, I think there is, there is a, a sense in the Middle East that, um, alliances shift quickly. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and power and perception of power matters. Uh, and I, I, you know, again, you could say rightly or wrongly, uh, but part of that culture uh, in in the Middle East is the uh, respect for the strong man, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and and uh, so I, I I think to some extent, if anything, Trump's sort of playing into the uh, uh, that that uh, that culture, right? Saying, look, this is you want to play tough. I can play tough with the best of them. Here's your toughest guy. He's gone now. Yeah. Um, Though, of course, so, that respect yeah, I, for the strongman I, culture has led to millennia of, you know, war. <laughs> but, you, know, right, other, you right. know, so maybe it's not the greatest. But anyway, I think that the thing we both agree on is that uh, we, we hope that this was a good bet by by yeah. President Trump. Yep. And we'll see. As you said, to start off this this story, time will tell. Yep. All right. Well, let's move to uh, domestic politics, the Democratic presidential race. This week, uh, Julian Castro announced that he was suspending his campaign, saying that with only a month until the Iowa caucuses and given the circumstances of this campaign season, I've determined that it simply isn't our time. Of course, Castro missed qualifying for the last debate, and he'd been polling at well under 2 percent. So this doesn't really come as a surprise to well, hardly anyone. And he also commented before he left the race that, you know, the first two primary states, Iowa and New Hampshire, which traditionally have outsized influence due to their going first, don't reflect the broader Democratic electorate. In fact, when he was campaigning in Iowa, he said that, which probably was a sign that he, <laughs> he knew he was getting. Yeah, you guys shouldn't be first. But so, Jay, uh, before we get into the other uh, primary news, what do you think about not just Castro quitting the race, but his comments in Iowa and New Hampshire? <laughs> um, I, again, I, I think it's and this is this is there's, you know, two different worlds because I, I can't imagine a Republican would ever say anything like that. No. Um, Though there have been it, Republicans who've said to Iowans. Well, criticized the early the early uh, part, part of it and that the Iowans are, are, are too wed to things like uh, ethanol. Yeah, ethanol, so yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking about. So it has uh, been done I, I, mean, before. I wasn't thinking about the demographic racial kind of. Sure. You know, again, his my my connotation. What I took away from Castro was that uh, he's upset that uh, Iowa and New Hampshire are are, are too white. Um, they are white. They're very yeah. white. <laughs> and, well, and, but then there's the, there's the implication that that follows from that 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 in what he's saying is, look, I'm suspending my cam- campaign because uh, you're too white and racist, and I know you won't vote for uh, a, a Hispanic man like me. Sure. Um, which, which to me, again, that's just falls back into the the Democrat, uh, Democratic Party, um, uh, sort of bizarre talking point of of you know, uh, why won't these stupid racists vote for us? Well, let me uh, you know, let me just you stupid yeah. racists. <laughs> well, let me just comment on it because there's I, that certainly is one way to look at it, and I'm not saying that there aren't some Democrats 
who uh, wouldn't make uh, a variant of that argument. But another way to look at it is not to say, well, these people are, aren't voting for me because they're racist, but the idea that, well, there aren't there aren't people who understand and can appreciate the value of diversity and the needs of other other groups because they don't have that lived experience. And you don't have to be a racist to not be able to have that understanding. And I think there are a lot more Democrats who feel that way, as opposed to the few people who are maybe the loudest voices on social media who say, well, if you don't vote for me because, and I'm a minority, it's because you're a racist. Uh, to me, that, that that comes off as a little bit of a euphemism, though. The, like, uh, well, they're not, they're not, they're not not voting for me because uh, there's the racist. It's because they're not comfortable or they don't value diversity. Well, I mean, you say someone doesn't value diversity. That's that's a euphemism for calling them a racist. Uh, well, right? also, I guess, I guess, well, let's talk about this for a minute. What do you mean by racist? I guess that they are are in this context that they are basing their vote uh and this is castro speaking right i mean this is uh that their vote would be uh determined primarily based on the um racial identity of of the candidate that he he feels he has less of a fair shot or less of a, a shot in those places because there aren't enough people who look like him See, I, I don't I don't see it that way. And I don't think that Castro really saw it that way. My, my take on it is kind of the, the opposite, is that it's not that people are too many people are viewing Castro's race as a negative, like, oh, I couldn't vote for this brown person. It's right. more of a case that more people don't appreciate what someone like Castro with his background and experiences could bring to uh, the uh, could could bring to the party could bring as as leader and so to me that you might say that's a subtle distinction but I think it's an important distinction because on the one mm -hmm. hand you can say well this person is doesn't look like me and that's bad on the other hand you can say well these people just don't understand you know, what the positive could be and and again made me it sounds like a subtle distinction but to me it's a very important distinction because it's not I'm not calling out people. Who I'm not. I don't think that most people who don't vote for Castro or people who didn't support Harris or anyone else are are racist. I just think that in some cases, well, in a lot of cases, they just thought they were better candidates. But sure. in other cases, they just they just didn't necessarily see that person's race as a positive, which it may or may not have been. Right. So and, I, and again, my 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 view on on these things as as the typical Republican conservative is that I I tend to see uh, a candidate's race as a as a nothing, right? Yeah, um, I, I imagine it, you would. I see it as potentially uh, potentially a positive, just like I see background as a positive, because I believe through a person's experiences in their life, they bring certain sensibilities, certain understandings that. People with different experiences uh, don't have. And of course, when you come up as part of a minority community that's been systematically, you know, uh, uh, prejudiced against and have, you know, has been disenfranchised in many ways. Well, that affects your experiences in ways that it say wouldn't be if you were, say, uh, I don't know, a, a millionaire real estate developer in New York. Okay. So I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, again, you know, I, 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 to me, it, it kind of comes out tomato, tomato. I mean, if we're going to say that, um, the, your, the, the point would be that California voters might value that experience more than Iowa voters, uh, 
and and why would they that share be? that experience? Yeah, because they okay. share that experience. It's a lot easier for someone to understand and appreciate the the background and the experiences and what a certain type of person brings to a campaign or brings to a candidacy if they share some of those experiences background. And so I actually agree with Castro. I favor a more balanced primary process, and by balanced, I mean more evenly spread out both in terms of delegates. So I'm not crazy about Super Tuesdays and also right. more demographically diverse, you know, both Iowa and oh, New and I, I can, I can absolutely agree with you on those, okay, cool. on those two pieces. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't have, I don't have any issue of is the way that we do primaries sort of goofy yeah. uh, <laughs> okay. with Iowa and New Hampshire. Yes. Yes. It's absolutely goofy. Um, the, the only thing that I, I think would, would serve as a reasonable defense to that would be sort of my fallback on tradition as well. Like it's goofy, but that's the way we've we've always done it, or that's the way we've done it for quite a while. Um, but well, but no, I, and again, conservatives have have for years uh, bemoaned the outside outsized influence that Iowa has on on dumb things like ethanol yeah. and so forth. Um, we're gonna get we're gonna get all kinds of like angry emails from Iowa now. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, but, but and, and like, likewise, yeah. though, I mean, you and, and used to be conservatives. Uh, New Hampshire was a, a a a wonderful place for conservatives to run, uh, particularly a primary, because there was a there was this sort of flinty Yankee uh, fiscal conservatism sort right. of sort of thing that was going on in in uh, New Hampshire. I think less so than it used to be, um, but there was there was always that that argument that New Hampshire pulled towards the right, yeah, uh, inordinately. Well, yeah, and I, I think you know it would be that it wouldn't be that difficult to design a more balanced system. I and mean, I was thinking, for instance, you could have Iowa and Nevada on the same day, you know, and maybe a week later with New Hampshire and Delaware, and that you get a little more diversity there. You know, there are different ways to do it, but that would really change how campaigns are. And it's like you point out, the sort of things that are focused on, uh, we, we heard for years, for decades, we've heard a lot more about ethanol, that sort of thing, than well, certainly it would merit on policy right. grounds because I was first. So I'm glad we agree on that larger point. Um, you know, and the other presidential news I wanted to talk about is, you know, we're starting to see those fourth quarter fundraising totals come in. And yeah, leading right. the pack on the Democratic side, we have Bernie Sanders, who raised a very impressive $34.5 million, followed by now former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg at $24.7 million. Joe Biden rebounding up to $22.7 million. Elizabeth Warren, $21.2. Andrew Yang, who's hanging strong there at $16.5. And Senator Amy Klobuchar at $11.4 million. And then meanwhile, on the Republican side, President Trump's campaign took in $46 million in the fourth quarter of 2019 as over $102 million cash on hand. Then there's former New York Mayor Michael, Michael Bloomberg, who, okay, it's only been six weeks, not quite six weeks, I think, since he announced his candidacy. He spent somewhere around $200 million, all his own money. With plenty right. more where that came from, given that he's worth around $55 billion. I mean, he's the— Again, point. to put that in context, that is more than what Trump has raised. Yeah. yeah. That he yeah. has spent in yeah. the last six weeks. Yeah. I mean, Bloomberg, right, 14th richest person in the world, even if he shattered, obliterated all presidential spending records, you know, he would still be, at worst, the 15th richest person in the right. world. And so this—the Bloomberg factor, this is one of the reasons why— I keep on probably the biggest reason why I keep on telling anyone who will listen that this is the most unpredictable presidential primary we've seen. I mean, nobody has any idea what the effects of this 
just incredibly eye-popping amount of money, targeted spending that Bloomberg's doing, are going to have. We'll find out after Super Tuesday. But anyone who says they know what's going to happen on the Democratic side is just, someone's going to guess right. But this is totally new ground. And as a political scientist, to me, it's, you know, it's, it's utterly fascinating. But also, you know, it's just like, wow, who, who the hell knows what's going to happen, honestly. So, Jay, what well, do you, what well, do you still think? Though- but, but well, I would say yes. You're right that this is this is a little unprecedented that you've you've got this this much money that someone can self finance and pour into a, a campaign. Um, but on the other hand, from what we've seen so far, it hasn't really moved the polls all that much. Well, there hasn't been a lot of right? polling I mean, in Super Tuesday states yet, so we're not really sure. I mean, we've seen a lot of polling in Iowa and New Hampshire, and the national polling, I would argue, isn't going to tell us a whole lot just because Bloomberg is targeting his ads you know, very, very specifically right. toward those Super Tuesday states. So we don't really have any good indicators. Maybe it won't do a whole lot, but uh, you know, this, this will be a real test of the power of this sort of targeted, targeted advertising. Yeah. But I get the sense that you don't think it's going to be that influential. I, I don't know what, what I don't um, want to put words I, in your mouth. I, I think he he's got he's gotten in too late. Um, he hasn't made it to any of the debates, which are just sort of like at this point winding down, right? Um, uh, and and what he is running on, it's 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 not particularly clear other than I'm running against Trump. Uh, so I, I don't think there's, he's he's picking up that uh, ideological left. I think I think the the best Bloomberg scenario is is some sort of Biden implosion. Um, you know something something we learned something new about about Ukraine or or China or some other Biden dealings or something like that or uh, just too many goofy gaffes and uh, you know that that sort of thing that opens up that middle lane for Bloomberg. Um, but otherwise, and I think I think there's also a resistance uh, in the Democratic Party uh, to that, just throwing money at it, right? Um, at least there is a there is a claim resistance. Yeah, right? I'd that, say I call it more of a claim resistance. We don't want resistance. people to just be able to come in and buy. You know, we're sick of billionaires coming in and buying the presidency. Well, here here comes a, a billionaire. Um, so uh, I think that's you know so much of of their you know, the, of the of what. Uh, uh, Sanders and Warren are running against are are people like Bloomberg. So oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and certainly Sanders and uh, or sorry Warren and particularly Sanders are the ones who have the the enthusiasm. But right. it, it isn't that difficult, I don't think, to come up with a scenario like you said. Uh, if there is a not necessarily a Biden implosion, but if he just significantly underperforms and uh, Bloomberg does a bit better than expected on Super Tuesday, you could you can see how this could become. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen where this could become a Bloomberg versus, say, I don't know, Sanders type of thing. And then a lot more of the Democratic establishment might say, you know what, uh, Mike Bloomberg maybe gives us a better chance. And oh, by the way, he can just spend uh, a ridiculous sure. amount oh, I, of money. I, I, I would, I would, absolutely. I, I would agree with the Bloomberg gives you a better chance to win. So. Yeah. So we, we, we shall we shall see about that. But like I said, it's as a political scientist, it's just wow. It's just an amazing, an amazing time, uh, certainly. Uh, before we move on, Jay, I want to thank some of our newest supporters. We have both Jen and Andrea, uh, and we uh, who are monthly sustaining supporters now on Patreon. Thank you so much. And Andrea sure. wrote in, listening from Australia, 
And that's only cool when I hear from, when we hear from international listeners. So thank you for tuning in from down there. Uh, I appreciate the bipartisan opinions. It's reassuring to know that there are sane Americans above the Fox noise. So <laughs> I guess Andrea probably favors more more my side of things than yours, Jay. But uh, but thank you, Andrea. We really appreciate it. And of course. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter on the show through Patreon, you get access to our weekly bonus show and a bunch of other things we put together for you at various support levels. Check it all out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can just go to politicsguys.com slash support. Thanks so much. All right, moving on. Jay, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit. We wanted to do something different for our mm-hmm. first show of 2020, our hopes and predictions for the new year. And okay, as a social scientist, for me, defining terms is a really important thing. It's one of the first yep. geeky questions. Say, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, which we just did today, you know, with, uh, uh, with racism, right? So here's what we mean. Here's what I kind of agreed upon meanings for hopes and predictions. Hopes are the political outcomes that we view as a best case scenario. They can be improbable, but not essentially impossible. And predictions are, it's a little easier, are our best guesses as to what will actually happen. And what we're going to do is focus on six main areas. Number one, the Senate trial and result. Number two, the Durham report that supposedly is coming out this spring. Number three, the trade war with China, the situation with Iran, the congressional election results and the presidential nomination and election results. That's a lot of stuff. Okay. Yeah, you know, we'll see what we can get through, but we've got some time. So uh, let's start with the Senate trial and result. Jay, what's your what's your hope uh, about that, your best case scenario as to how you see this, this coming out? I, w- I would say best case scenario uh, would be there is a trial in the Senate. Uh, there are some witnesses called. Uh, it, there is a vote, uh, Trump is acquitted with, oh, let's say four democratic votes. Okay. That's, that's sort of my, my best, I I would say my, I think my, I think the real, the the more likely is, uh, Trump is is acquitted, uh, party line plus Joe Manchin. Okay. So that's your, that's your prediction. Uh, It's going to be uh, one Democrat voting for, uh, for acquittal. Ours our, uh, on this, we're not that far apart. So I want to start with uh, one thing that's a little different in my hope. And I want <laughs> to talk unanimous. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, this again, it has to be, it has to be at least probable. I mean, not totally impossible. Sorry. Right. So I, I started my hope with an agreement on process, how this is going to work out. And this kind of gets in here. There were some written witnesses, an agreement that at least two thirds of the Senate approves. Now, last time, uh, under for the Clinton impeachment and trial, sorry for the trial, it was a unanimous consent uh, agreement on the on the rules. We're not going to get that this time, but I would be thrilled. I would be thrilled if at least two thirds of the Senate, which would mean something like fourteen or so Democrats, can sign on to whatever. Because that, to me, would be a sign that these these proceedings are truly. Bipartisan. Sure, maybe some people for the who are further left than me don't like them, but I think that gives it a lot more legitimacy. And I hope that happens. You probably agree with me on that, right? I, th- I think so. Depending on what the the procedures are and and how it's sure. Uh, again, obviously, I, I I have trouble with the the House dictating the procedures to the Senate. 
And, and the house um, can't do that, obviously, right. you know, but yeah. But they're trying. Sure, they're trying. I mean, they're trying to exert and, and that so pressure, I think, absolutely. I think that's, that's how that is, is, is played out. So, yeah. but, um, but in terms of that, let me ask you, my guess, my prediction here is that a pro- there's going to be a process agreement that gets a, a few Democrat votes, but nowhere close to two-thirds of the Senate. Would you say that's about right? I'd agree prediction? on that, yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then in terms of what will happen, my hope is that it won't be an entirely party line vote on conviction and removal. And I see maybe there, I agree with you that there are probably potentially going to be a few Democrats voting to acquit. And I'm thinking of Doug Jones in Alabama, Joe right. Manson in Manchin, sorry, in West Virginia, uh, Chris, uh, Kristen Sinema in, in Arizona. And then there are also some Republicans who you could possibly see voting convict, depending how things go. Uh, there's Susan Collins, uh, Lisa Murkowski, uh, Cory Gardner, uh, maybe McSally Romney, I don't know. But th- th- those are not totally out of the realm of possibility, though that's not my prediction. My prediction is that all of the Republicans are going to vote to acquit and they're going to be from one to three Democrats joining them. And that sounds pretty much like your yeah. prediction, basically. Yeah. So, so yeah. Okay. Um, and we should probably, well, it's gonna be interesting for all of these. We, we should kind of revisit these after this happens to see how close we were on these things, but we're pretty close in terms of what we expect from the Senate trial. Yep. All right. Moving on to the Durham report. And for people who uh, need a refresher on what that is, that is the investigation that attorney general Barr ordered on not just the FBI, but how the broader intelligence community had handled that crossfire hurricane investigation into Russian influence and uh, possible coordination or uh, not not uh, collaboration with the Trump campaign, right? And of course, the uh, internal Justice Department uh, uh, investigation found that there were some serious problems with the FBI, but that the investigation was lawfully and correctly predicated, though the bar was set pretty low. And there are a lot of people specifically on the right who thinks that the Durham report is going to find a lot more than that. Now, my hope here is that the Durham report isn't going to be significantly different from that IG, the Horowitz report, that he'll find some major procedural issues, just like Horowitz did, but that there's no political bias and there won't be anything that rises to the level of a criminal indictment. And I hope that because I would like to I, I would like to think that our intelligence community is not engaged in that. That would be a that would be horrifically bad. So that's why that's my hope. Now it's not a pro or anti-Trump thing. It's just I, I hope that we don't have a rogue intelligence community, you know? Um right. my prediction here is that it the Durham report will be more damning than the Horowitz, Horowitz report. It's going to find widespread issues, when, and it will conclude that the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was not sufficiently predicated. It's going to lead to some firings and some pretty drastic, you know, some Senate hearings, certainly, but I don't think there will be any major indictments. So, Jay, uh, what do you think? Uh, I think you're mostly right. I, although I do think there there will be some indictments. Um, although I'm not sure who just yet. Uh, but at this point, you know, McCabe has already been, uh, uh, you know, his name forwarded, I guess, for yeah. for indictment. Um, but I, I think there's there's going to be some other things. And, and when you talk about systemic failures, um, I mean, I, I would differ a little bit in that sometimes what we call systemic failures are are human failures, right? 
um, when you have a Justice Department uh, lawyer uh, altering an email uh, to to make it sound the right. exact opposite right. of what and it that's is, not that, a that's, that's not failure. a problem. Well, again, no. the system yeah. just isn't quite working right. Yeah. No, that that guy's a crook. Yep. Um, uh, so I, I think there there are going there is going to be uh, some indictments. I I don't know who yet because I'm I don't have that kind of information, but. Uh, uh, I would say McCabe would be probably top of the list just based on what we know so far. Yeah. And, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's very subjective to say what's a major indictment and what's not. Uh, but I do think that there'll be at least, you know, like, like you said, the you know, altering of a record that to me, that seems to be a pretty clear criminal offense. And so I think there'll be a few things like that, but I, but I think what will not happen is sort of the hope of some people on the right who, uh, who you know, hope that basically this is going to be the same kind of smoking gun that a lot of folks on the left hope the Mueller report was going to be. Right. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we shall see on that. All right, let's moving on. Next, the trade war with China. Why don't you go first for your hope and prediction on this, Jay? Um, I think my hope and my prediction are probably going to be more or less about the same. Oh, okay. uh, I think we will continue to work towards some trade agreement uh, that is going to be imperfect, but probably better than what we started with. Um, okay. I, I, again, this is, you know, with, with Trump, it's just so, so strange because you get these kind of fits and starts of, okay, we're going to sign the deal. We're ready to go up. Oh, no, something else has blown up. Yeah. Um, but at this point, we really do seem to have some momentum and and be moving the sort of to de-escalating the trade war. Uh, my sense is also that that Trump is smart enough, or has people around him smart enough to say, "Look, uh, regardless of of what you want to do um, with punishing China and tariff and how much you love tariffs, there is damage being done to the economy. And if you want to be reelected, you need to have the economy uh, running strong. Uh, and there will be that that impetus for him to." uh cut cut back on the uh the trade war both both with china and and you know these other little um you know goofy thing with france or canadian yeah. milk or or i mean all these other sort of little silly things will start to put aside in order to uh for the greater good of the economy yeah i you know i my hope here is i think we since we have the same sort of views on on trade is is very much like yours is i hope that the chinese will make some non-trivial concessions on the major issues like intellectual property opening mar markets um i was going to say state subsidies but i think that's that's too much to, to ask for even in a hope but my prediction is a little more pessimistic than yours i think just like everyone else the chinese are waiting for the 2020 election and hoping that uh will elect a president who's going to be a lot more uh, willing to work with them. And so I think they're going to be much more resistant to making concessions until January of 2021. And so I, I see maybe a, uh, an agreement that really isn't much at all. Maybe it gives the president something to say, but substantively, it's just not much, and it doesn't address any of the fundamental problems. Something at well, we'd see something of like a ceasefire, perhaps. Yeah, exactly, exactly that sort of thing. Yeah. And so that might be enough for the president to go to his base and say, you know, hey, I got this agreement, but I don't think that substantively we're going to see much at all. And would you? Would you? I guess, um, I guess that's that. That's not too far apart from, from yeah. where I was. Yeah, I think I think yeah. I think you're right. Uh, what about? Uh, yeah, I, I I would agree. I don't see I don't see that we're going to sign a major 
uh, relationship-changing trade agreement in the next yeah. year. Yeah, not, not I at think all. it'll be these series of, of small sort of steps and small de-escalations and rolling back sanctions and you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think moving forward, I think no matter who is elected in November, that in early 2021, we're going to see some movement on this one way or the other. Would you would you agree? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, All right. I think so. Moving on to uh, something we talked about earlier, Iran and Iraq. Uh, so, what's your hope and prediction for this new, uh, not really new, but you know, certainly escalating tensions uh, in, in this area? Uh, I I think my my hope is that uh, Iran will become continually isolated from the rest of the civilized world. Um, and I think we've we've seen that sort of thing already in that, uh, if you remember a year or so ago, when we were up in the sanctions on on Iran, uh, and the the conventional wisdom was, well, it's not going to matter because the Europeans aren't going to go along with it. Well, for the most part, the Europeans have gone along with it. Mm-hmm. They have. Um, and and uh, I, I think that's going to be the same sort of thing. if if uh, Iran, comes up with the big counterpunch that uh, they're saying that's going to uh, even further isolate uh, them in terms of, of the rest of the world, and it's going to increase economic pressure. Um, the mullahs, without having uh, their number one go-to guy, uh, are start are going to start to feel the uh, the pressure um, from from their own people. So, so it sounds like your hope and your prediction are fairly similar. Yeah, I, I okay. think so. And uh, uh, you know my. My, I mean, I guess. Well, let me. The 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 hope the hope would be, uh, 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 Khamenei, the your your senior cleric, uh, mm-hmm. just finally drops off, um, and uh, then there is a regime change. Uh, I don't think that's that's going to happen. Um, that would be my hope. Yeah. Right. You know, that, I, that, yeah. You know, yeah. these some of these old liners would just die, and Soleimani is being out or and or disgraced. Uh, you would have a more moderate regime uh, take over. Uh, I, I I I would put that in the category of possible, but but not likely. So. Well, you're you're a lot more optimistic about uh, the region than I am, I guess, because my hope is, uh, well, that there's going to be while there'll be well, there will be lots of posturing. That uh, and there will be some response by Iran. It will not be a dramatic escalation, uh, and that Iran's economy manages to not completely collapse. I don't know how that's going to happen. Maybe some help from Europe, maybe something. Because I believe that if their economy completely collapses, that that is going to lead to just some horrific consequences. That's my hope. My prediction is that there's going to be a significant escalation of hostilities because I don't see Iran's economy doing anything but getting worse. And as the leadership in Iran gets more and more desperate, they're going to lash out. And I just think that this is going to – I hope I'm wrong about this, but I just think that this next year in, in the Middle East is going to be truly awful. And I, I hope I'm wrong about that. All right, moving okay. on to – yeah, yeah I, we all hope I'm wrong about that, obviously. Moving on to the 2020 congressional election results. Uh, Here's my hope. My hope is that the Democrats add a few seats to their House majority uh, and get to a 50-50 split in the Senate. Of course, currently it's 53 to 47. Now, in this hopeful scenario for me, the Democrats hold all 12 seats they're defending this time, including Doug Jones in Alabama. 
and they pick up three of the 23 seats the Republicans are defending. And that would be most likely Arizona, McSally, uh, Gardner's seat in Colorado and Collins's seat in, uh, in Maine. Now, my prediction is that Democrats keep their House majority, but I think they might actually lose a handful of seats because there were just too many toss-up seats that are currently held by yep. Democrats because they did so well in 2018 in the House. And I think it's going to stay even in the Senate. I see Jones as losing in Alabama and the Democrats picking up one of those three close Republican seats. So I think it's going to be pretty much the same Congress that we have right now. That's my prediction. What do you think, Jay? Um, I think I think that's, that's pretty that's pretty in line with what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. I would say the Democrats will be you will have a lot of these Democrats in in more moderate districts. Uh, have a tough time uh, because of the impeachment vote and because of just being uh, uh, tied to the the more sure. uh, the more liberal wing the more the liberal wing of their party. Yeah. Um, there are going to be a lot of folks who are going to be uh, in, in these these suburban districts who are uh, while they may not be embracing Trump, uh, they don't have to embrace Trump, if you know what I mean. They yeah. just have to be able to push away uh, Ocasio-Cortez and, and so forth. Um, and I think that's that's going to be tough to do. There's going to be some some tough ads uh, running against these guys saying, look, they vote with the squad. They voted for, you know, rather than rather than give you the option of um, uh, voting for president, they wanted to, to remove them. Uh, and I think that's going to have an impact. I can't tell you how much so far, but I think what the number was – Oh, well, it was in the, like the, the low teens, right, of, of those type districts that uh, the Democrats kind of came to power on. I, I, I think they could lose half those um, in the House. Again, that doesn't that doesn't uh, substantially change uh, the balance of power or anything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it does make the Democratic caucus uh, even more left leaning. And I think you're right on the Senate. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there were something like 30, I want to say 33, 30 something districts that the Democrats picked up that Trump won in 2016. So but it sounds like it sounds like our predictions are essentially the same. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah pretty much. What's your best case scenario? What's your what's your hope? Oh, I mean, my hope would be uh, Republicans take the House uh, and, uh, you know, you lose all those all those uh, 30 some toss ups. Um I, I again, I don't I don't think that that would really happen. I think that's that's unlikely. Um, but again, not not impossible, uh, depending on, you know, so often it's, yeah. it's who the candidates are, how well they're funded, all that sort of thing. What else is going on? Yeah. But I think particularly if you have uh, if the Democrats have a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren as their standard bearer. That's going to make it really yeah. tough for those those candidates. You know, I, it, it's interesting because this is I think this is such a difficult, difficult race to predict because almost everyone seems to think that voter turnout is likely to be the highest it's been maybe in a century, actually, in terms of percentage of eligible voters, given all the enthusiasm or, I don't know, hatred, depending on how you look at it, on both <laughs> sides. Right. And so that could really that could really screw up a lot of predictions and so I, I am I I am less confident about my predictions in 2020, I think, than I've ever been about my predictions, both for Congress and for what we're going to turn to next, the presidential nomination and election results. So, Jay, why don't you start out? What first off, talk about the who you think the your hope and your prediction for the the nominee of the Democrats. Oh, gosh. Well, that's that's tough because it's one of those. I mean, hope and yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, on on the one hand, um, 
listen, I mean, a, a, a president of Bloomberg or a president Biden, uh, I, I think I, you know, I I could live with, you know what yeah. I mean? I'm, I'm certainly would not, I, they wouldn't be my first choice. Um, but both of them would be, and, and probably more Bloomberg, uh, wouldn't be particularly ideological. It'd be more sort of a technocratic and there'd be plenty of stuff that I wouldn't like, but, uh, but it wouldn't be this sort of fundamental change to, to the way America's run for the last couple hundred years. Yeah. Um, if it is a, a Sanders or, um, uh, Warren. Um, then I think, I mean, in some ways I, I, I hope for that because it would be wonderful to see a great repudiation of socialism. Um, and democratic socialism. Well, that's how it starts. That's how it starts. Um, <laughs> But uh, so I, 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 in the one hand, I, I think that would be, be good because I think the Democrats, uh, a lot of them have, uh, of the base, have fundamentally miscalculated that, uh, look, uh, a lot of people don't like Trump and, and the buffoonishness and the, uh, the tweets and, and all, all the, the, the Trumpism, sure. but that doesn't mean we want socialism. Right. Um, and so. And, and I think that's. I was going to say, your hope either so, way is no matter who's nominated, is that the, your hope is that Donald Trump wins. My hope is that socialism is crushed. <laughs> right, well, okay. well, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, I think that's going to, yeah, we don't really, we won't actually have socialism no matter what happens. But I mean, I'm saying that no matter, no matter who the Democratic yeah, nominee no, I, is. I would, yes, I would, I would prefer a Trump presidency over okay. uh, even a Biden or a, right. um, yeah. And your prediction? For who the nominee is um, going to be and I, what I the results I mean, are going to be with the with the with the the primary is the Democrat primary is so is so crazy. I yeah. I'm almost afraid to hazard a guess. And I know a I lot know of like very smart people have said this this could be or likely might be a contested convention. Now people always tend to say that at this point in the race, especially right? journalists because they're hoping. You know, it's like yeah, oh god, wouldn't it's it be like, good? oh boy, this is going to be this is going to be the <laughs> yeah. year. Uh, uh -huh. it's gonna, you know, I, I can tell you it's coming. Um, and and it rarely happens. So, yeah. uh, but but we'll see. Um, this the 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 Sanders money thing uh, strikes me as weird. Um, that that was sort of something that I didn't expect or didn't see coming. I would I would have thought more of the uh, that money would have been going to Elizabeth Warren, who's kind of the more refined Bernie Sanders, right? No, she screwed up um, on the Medicare for all thing because there are a lot of folks who just don't feel she has the courage of her convictions on this like Bernie does, I think. Yeah, well. But so do you think, is, is your prediction that no matter who the Democrats nominate, the President Trump's going to win his second term? Probably. Okay. Probably. Again, I think I think he could lose to to a Biden or someone like that. Um, but I, I don't think he, he would lose to a uh, Warren or a, a Sanders. All right. Well, my hope, and I stretch the limits of what a realistic hope could be, but my hope is still that Cory Booker wins the nomination. Now, I'm not sure how that would happen, uh, but again, as you talked about, you know, with everything that's going on, as we talked about earlier with Bloomberg spending all this money, I'm calling that incredibly unlikely, but not essentially impossible, though it's tough for me to figure out how that happens. But anyway... That's my hope. And then that in the general election, Booker wins and he picks up just under 300 electoral votes. And just as a reminder to folks, Donald Trump won 304 electoral votes in 2016. That's my hope. My prediction, right along with you, Jay, I think there are just too many variables and it's too early yet. I'll have a better prediction after Super Tuesday, I think. But, okay. but I think it's likely 
that the nominee will, will be either one of the two leading progressives, and that's Sanders or Warren, or one of the two leading moderates, and right now that's Biden or Buttigieg. And I think if one of the progressive gets the nomination, I see Trump being reelected with somewhere around 280 electoral votes. If one of the two moderates wins, I see them winning with right around what I expected Booker to win with somewhere just under or right around 300 electoral votes. And that's, I kind of pulled out the map on 270 to win. It's it's a fun thing to play around with the website right. and kind of plugged some stuff in there. And so that's kind of how I see this, this playing out. I don't think, I don't think either whoever wins, I don't think they're going to end up with much, with more electoral votes than Donald Trump got in 2016. That's just my sense of things. So, uh, so I, I, uh, I agree with you in that, while I share a number of policy positions with uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren and to a lesser extent Bernie Sanders, I think that the progressives are wrong in thinking that enough people will agree with those positions to get the Electoral College victory. I could totally see an instance in which uh, a Sanders or a Warren maybe gets a popular vote majority, just like Clinton did, but loses the electoral vote. But uh, I, I hope I'm wrong about, I hope I'm wrong about that. But my, my gut tells me that, that one of the progressives might just end up winning the nomination. I kind of feel like that's a little more likely than not, because that's where the enthusiasm is. And that ends up with another four years of Trump. And God, I hope I don't, I I hope, I hope I, this is my greatest hope, Jay. I hope that I don't end up saying, I told you so to my progressive friends (laughs) and because of another four years of Trump, because I feel like that would be my, the greatest disaster. And my, my number one hope, like everyone else on the left is that Donald Trump is not reelected. Okay. All right. So, uh, you know, before we, before we go, and actually, you know, we're talking about predictions, and this isn't really a prediction, but uh, more like a, our hopes for 2020 for the politics guys. Uh, a couple of things we're going to be trying out that we want people to know about. And one thing you're going to notice is that our sort of cast of thousands uh, hosting plan that we've been running in 2019 as we were trying some things out, we're done with that. Um, we understand how important it is having a small stable group of hosts. Now, I guess individual hosts stable. might not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I used that term. You know what stable I mean? Stable genius. Yes, exactly. But uh, we've settled on a regular lineup of just three main hosting teams. There's the classic, you and me, Jay, we're the, the original yeah, hosts. Right. Uh, then Kristen and me, and also Trey and Ken. Uh, you've told us that these three teams are your favorites and we want to give you more of what you like the most. And so that's what you're going to see in regular rotation. There might be a, a week or two where someone's off and we have a guest host, but that's pretty much going to be it. Second, we're going to be experimenting with limited sponsorships for the show. And Jay, you remember we've done this in the past, but we went away from it because of two big issues for us. I mean, we love we love the free stuff, right? It was kind of right. cool. But First off, we didn't have a lot of choice. I mean, at the time we signed a deal under which we ran these ads, our ability to say no to specific advertisers was limited. Uh, And second, our ad deal prohibited us from offering our Patreon supporters an ad-free option. And under our new model, neither of these things apply. We now have complete discretion over the products and services we're going to be mentioning on the show, which means that we're only going to be talking about stuff that we really like. 
And second, we're able to give our Patreon supporters an ad-free option. And if you're already a supporter, that ad-free version of our show will automatically appear in your supporters' you bonus got feed. It. Yep, you're already going to be getting it. So we're doing this because, well, we need to find some way to put the show on a sustainable financial footing for the long term. And honestly, it just wasn't happening with advertising. I just recently did our year-end financials for the show, and uh, it became really apparent to me. So our preference, of course, would be to bring in enough solely from supporters to keep the show going. And if that ever ends up happening, hey, that would be great. So if what we're doing here matters to you, and if you're not yet a supporter and you're able to support the show, we would love it if you could do that. You know, there are all these extra things you get as a supporter, including the weekly bonus show. And Jay, you and I are going to be doing that in just a few minutes. That should yep. be fun. Um, there's our weekly quick take. Trey's doing it this week. Politics Guys uh, gear and a bunch more stuff. And again, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com. Uh, dot com slash support. And if you're already a supporter or if, you know, you'd like to be, but money's tight, you can't right now, spreading the word is super important. You know, broadening the base, well, that's not just political parties that talk about that, right? It's important for us too, because the larger our audience base is, the easier it becomes to keep the show going. So the best way to reach more people is having enthusiastic fans of the show talk about it on social media or if you're old school email or even just telling somebody. So if you Yelling can share stuff in the street, you, you yeah. know, there you go. Absolutely. So what, however you could do that, that helps us out a lot more than you might really realize. And also rating and reviewing the show that doesn't hurt either on whatever podcast app you're using. Finally, if you have any comment about our new format ideas or anything, really uh, stories you'd like us to talk about gripes, complaints, suggestions, you can email us at mail at politicsguys.com. We also late last year started great discussions on our bipartisan politics subreddit. That's reddit.com slash r slash bipartisan politics. I've been really impressed by the quality of the discussion there. Um, and you'll find the URL for that in the show notes if you don't want to remember that big thing. We also have our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.